This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio. Welcome to the Money Pot. I'm Sanjeev Kalita, editor in chief at Money 2020. Like many of you, I follow the news of startup funding quite religiously. And last month, the fintech universe was set abuzz following the news that A16Z, or also known as Andreessen Horowitz, had written its biggest check to date, a whopping $350 million that valued little-known real estate startup flow at a cool $1 billion. It wasn't the eye-watering sum or the startup itself that was at the heart of the controversy that has since ensued, but the man behind the company, Adam Newman. Newman famously founded WeWork, the co-working startup, and subsequently brought the company to near bankruptcy. It ultimately ended in him being kicked out of the company following allegations of impropriety. At a time characterized by an ever more polarized society, the news saw near universal condemnation of A16Z's investment. In 2021, female founders in the US received only a mere 2% of venture funding. If that wasn't enough, the $350 million Newman raised was more than the total funding for black founders in the US in the first six months of the year. That's absolutely crazy. In today's episode, we wanted to dissect how a cognitive bias many of us often fall prey to could explain why A16Z invested so much money in a founder who has had his own share of controversy, and why this cognitive bias is a drain on inclusion and therefore a drain on innovation. First, I want to turn to my colleague and Money 2020 financial journalist, Miki Tesfaye, to discuss survivor bias and why that might have played a role in this investment. So you actually wrote a blog about survivor bias just before this news broke out. Did you have an inside scoop or are you just a fortune teller? Hey, Sanj. I wish I could say I know how to read the future, but it was really just simple serendipity, to be honest with you. I was at uh, my friend's wedding a few weeks back before I wrote the blog and you know I was speaking with a VC and we started talking about this heuristic that VCs often rely on this uh, thing of um, backing past founders and that really got me thinking serendipitous indeed okay so maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about this idea of survivor bias yeah so survivor bias or survivorship bias is a cognitive fallacy and essentially it's when you look at a given group and you focus only on examples of those who become successful you select those to represent the whole rather than the group as a whole which would include those that didn't actually make it or the ones that didn't survive okay so you know let, let's put that into real terms give me an example sure so you know there is this prevalent uh, cultural phenomena of the hoodie wearing college dropouts right that turned into industry titans their jobs the gates the zuckerberg mythology so if you look at these founders you might think that to reach their level of success you need to drop out of school and run with your idea yeah so to figure out what made these people successful we look at the kind of shared traits they have and this isn't just in investing this is widely popular in society you know books like um the seven habits of highly effective people or what did billion uh, dollar companies look like at series a became incredibly successful because they kind of distilled the the secrets to success 
or in other words, we look at the successful and we think there's something within them or something that they did that has made them successful. But the problem with this is when we look at those that have made it, we ignore those that didn't. Um, we ignore the thousands of college dropouts who didn't go on to start a trillion dollar company. But, and, and focusing on founders with previous exits is much like thinking, you know, what made Jobs and Gates and Zuckerberg successful is dropping out of college. But the reality is how many other college dropouts have followed this jobs model and failed? Well, we probably don't know because no one writes about them, right? You don't get, you know, a front page write up about uh, the brilliant yet unknown entrepreneurs that failed with their business ideas. Well, that makes sense. But what does that have to do with venture capital funding? So being a VC is a pretty high, a high risk, high reward game, right? And for all the data and analysis, probably the biggest indicator investors use to determine if a startup will be successful or not is if a founder has had a past exit. And that actually sounds fairly logical when we think about it, because, you know, a startup's fate is determined by a whole host of unknowns. And with so much uncertainty, founders with previous exits offer an antidote. It's a bit, you know, as close to certain as you can be. Because if they've done it once, they're more likely to do it again. And so, you know, what ends up happening is we see founders with previous exits getting a lot more opportunities for their next venture. Okay, sure. I, I've experienced and seen this myself. Uh, it is very common for VCs to prefer past founders. But I guess your point is that this is a cognitive bias that drives investments like the one in Flow? Yeah, precisely. So why is this a problem? So essentially, it becomes problematic because it actually makes you pretty poor at predicting the future. So when we think about the example with the founders, you know, more founders have failed with their second or third venture than have succeeded. It's just, you know, simple statistics or probability. But, but the decision was made based on a data set that ignores all of those. Essentially, your decision-making process has become broken at that point. Thanks, Mickey. And that's actually a perfect segue for Rachel Morrissey, the executive producer of the podcast, to join us. So, Rach, it's pretty easy to see how this could affect inclusion. But do you have some thoughts about how deeply this kind of thinking runs? Yeah, so I think I can safely say we don't need to beat the drum about inclusion. Inclusion isn't about being nice. I mean, there's plenty of data and studies that point to inclusion being beneficial for both large and small teams. And McKinsey puts out a report every few years explaining that the business is case for diversity. I mean, companies with diverse teams can experience more tension, but they also have a higher profitability and productivity. Companies with 30% women outperform similar organizations with less than 30%, for example. Absolutely. In inclusion is fundamental to a robust and well-functioning team. But how does survivor bias get in the way of that? Well, survivor bias isn't about intent. It's not about, I mean, we won't fund diversity. It's about feeling more comfortable where you're putting your money. So, I mean, say you're a VC. When your data set of likely to succeed founders is determined by a very small pool, especially those who've succeeded in the past, it makes it a lot harder for others to break in and get noticed and get investment. And if you look at 2021, of the total venture capital funding raised in the U.S., 
only 2% went to women. If all else is equal, that means of every 1,000 startups funded in the U.S. last year, only 20 of them had female founders. If 80% of funded startups fail, that means only four startups with female founders will exit, compared to the 196 startups with male founders. So a VC's survival bias will tell them that only a tiny portion of future winners will be startups founded by women. But in reality, only a fraction of female founders have had that opportunity. So we have the data. We're aware of the issue. Why doesn't it change? Well, at the heart of this issue is that we rely on this type of thinking a lot. I mean, it's reassuring to believe there is a known when there are just so many unknowns. But that is also why it can be so insidious. I'm going to push back here. I'm a founder and I've helped build multiple companies. That experience can be a great reason to invest in me. My former successes should indicate my future successes. And I get this point of view. But is it just about your ideas or about your history of proving trustworthy too? I mean, I read a newsletter last week by Simon Taylor, who's a good friend of Money 2020. And he wrote about the new funding for Flow and the case for Adam Newman as a founder. Now, Simon is probably one of the smartest people talking and educating about fintech. And to be fair, in Simon's piece, he was taking the part of a devil's advocate and trying to make a case for why investing in Adam Newman as a founder makes good sense. After all, Newman did change the office rental experience for startups and built a multi-billion dollar business. But the problem with him as a founder isn't his ideas. WeWork survived despite his financial shenanigans and behavior. He left a lot of people high and dry, and he really damaged their lives. But because his idea seemed successful, I mean, you can see the lifting that Survivor Bias is doing right here. He was successful in disrupting an office rental space, so he'll have the same success in disrupting the residential real estate business. But if you look at Simon's point when you break it down, it's, it's not really about Newman changing the office rental space. What do you mean? Well, if you look at other posts by Simon, he explains a pretty central problem that the financial industry faces. I mean, he pointed out that often the most profitable activity is the most socially destructive. He uses the examples of subprime lending with high fees, financing commodities like oil, and taking the other side of a trade where institutions win and consumers lose. So WeWork, with build up on unreliable reporting and credulous accounting, is considered a success. And the only reason to invest with Adam Newman is that you believe he can make you money despite past behaviors. So this leaves us with an important question to ask. How do we battle a bias that doesn't feel real? Uh, you know, to help me unpack, I want to welcome Keisha Allison, our head of content in the U.S. Hi, Keisha. Hey, Sanj. So essentially, when the same people are given the opportunities to create business and provide solutions to society's problems, we limit how we think about and address those challenges. So going back to flow, the mission in and of itself isn't wrong. In fact, it's a really important task. We have a huge housing crisis in the U.S. that's continuing to drive inequality, and solving for that is a valuable and worthy cause. But when we don't have a diversity of experiences and voices, we limit what is possible. We limit the way in which we look at problems and the way in which we look at the possible solutions for this. That makes a lot of sense, Keisha. My question is in terms of innovation. What kind of example can we use to illustrate it? 
A great example is a post I saw a couple days ago on LinkedIn about this lady called Dee, who works at JetBlue. So the original poster saw a crowd of people holding airplanes. Due to the flight delays that were frustrating passengers, Dee decided to step in and come up with a game. She announced a $100 JetBlue voucher for anyone on the flight who could throw a paper plane the farthest. It seemed like half the gate joined the competition. Strangers stopped to watch. People were laughing, smiling. Kids were joining. It was literally contagious. So this is heartwarming. But you know, what stood out for me is how D came up with an incredibly innovative solution to a problem that we've seen multinational corporations with execs compensated with millions of dollars a year fail to solve. People who are closest to experiences often have fantastic and ingenuitive solutions to daily problems they face. But when we invest in repeat founders, we don't let the Ds of the world, some of whom could radically transform the issues we face, come to the forefront. That, that's an incredible story, Keisha. I, my flight was canceled in Charlotte last week, and I was stuck, and I wish D was there. Um, and that takes guts and heart to take the beating out of complaints and then turn around and do something to genuinely delight your customer. You inspired me, D. And I think this point you make is incredibly powerful, Keisha. Um, and, you know, this also brings uh, to mind how companies, when they were looking for developers and programmers, you know, they, they'd look for computer science degrees and engineers from the top schools. And then, you know, little by little, they started look, expanding the school set. And then, then there were things like uh, coding academies and user experience academies. And, and now, um, you know, large companies like even Google and Meta are looking at people that are doing these online um, classes. So, you know, I, I think it comes down to pattern matching. And, you know, in this case, they were looking for patterns of good developers and expanding what patterns they looked at. And I think that in this case, VCs need to expand the pattern set that they're looking at for uh, successful founders or investable founders. That's it for this episode of The Money Pot. We want to thank our producer and fearless co-founder, Roland Bodnam. Thank you for listening. And if you like the show, please give us a thumbs up. It makes it easier for people to find us. Have a great week. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.